This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It begs the question, if we'd had more diversity in our national security and foreign policy leadership over the years, rather, what could have been the outcome in some of our most vexing and enduring challenges? And I can say that as a nonproliferation professional. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Smart Women, Smart Power is partnering with Girls Security for Women's History Month to facilitate conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. This conversation features Girls Security Scholar Hannah Barrett and CSIS's Nicole Andall, Director of the Diversity and Leadership in International Affairs Program. We discussed issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the national security space. Nicole and Hannah, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the way this is going to work Just so our listeners know, we are doing this joint project with Girls Security, where next-gen scholars are talking with established women leaders. And Hannah, I want to ask you first, you chose diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in the national security space for your topic here. And certainly these issues have gotten a lot of attention in recent months. Was that the reason that you chose this topic? Or tell me more about why you chose it. Yeah, for sure. So I think at a time when our country is coming to terms with a lot of inequities ranging from racial injustice to sexual assault awareness, it's important to examine how these inequities intersect in some of our country's most fundamental industries, such as foreign policy, national security, and kind of our government systems. And what made you want to talk to Nicole about it? I think that diversity initiatives are popping up all around kind of the security space, and that's great to see, but it's really rare to find someone with such meaningful experience in both diversity advocacy and national security as a professional herself. So that's why I was really excited to have Nicole on today. And with that, thank you for joining us, Nicole. You have a rich background in security law and diversity advocacy, as I just mentioned. Would you mind telling our listeners briefly about your background and how it brought you to your role as Director of Diversity and Leadership and International Affairs Program at CSIS? Sure, Anna. Thanks again. I'm looking forward to this discussion. So the first thing to know about me is I'm a 70s kid, and I came of age in the 80s. And I spent my entire childhood on Long Island, New York, right outside of New York City, But I grew up in a really global neighborhood. You know, even my elementary school had a Spanish club. I was an eager participant in that. And then my family moved to Cleveland because my dad's job. And it wasn't quite as diverse as where I came from. But my schools, they had like incredible language programs and study abroad. And what was great was that black and brown kids were participating in these programs. And, you know, I convinced my parents to let us even host international students in our home which wasn't too much of a hard sell for my dad because he had grown up as a military brat in Europe. But I started taking Russian my senior year in high school was when it was first offered, but it also happened to be the same year that the Berlin Wall came down. And it was five years after like Rocky Four and Red Dawn could come out. So I already had that kind of little spark of interest in Russian studies. So it was perfect that I had it at school. But when I declared Russian as my major in college, a lot of people kind of looked at me sideways because it wasn't common to see somebody like me in that space. But 
since I was in DC, I went to Howard, I quickly learned about Condoleezza Rice. And so I invoked her frequently, all the time. Anytime somebody looked at me sideways, I'm like, oh, but look, look, look at Condoleezza Rice. So thank you to her for <laughs> serving that role. And also, you know, looking to her helped me quiet any self-doubt. But, you know, I was able to get entry into the field. And Russian, again, Russian language skills were really hot at the time um, for careers. But I was almost always only the only person of color in there. And I was often the only woman. And also most of us diverse folks, we were just junior. You didn't see anybody at mid-level. You didn't really see anybody at senior leadership. And, you know, that just it hasn't changed over the course of my, my 20-year career. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible to hear about how you kind of got here. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the mission of the diversity and leadership in international affairs programs and the work your team does at CSIS specifically now? Sure. So I've been the part of and the target of so many uh, diversity and inclusion programs over the years, and I'm still trying to quantify all those programs. Some were really excellent in direction, but really imperfect in how they were executed, and others were just completely misguided. They had good intentions, but they just they didn't work. But the problem is nobody really talks about the hard work it takes to make that change. So our program at CSIS is focused on the work, right? If you want a more inclusive culture, you got to work. You got to walk the walk. And our program occupies like a really unique space in our organization. So we have a broad audience and then we can build allyship kind of across the, the spectrum. And we're really focused on, on service. So like we provide tools, counsel. We provide means to achieve diversity and inclusion objectives, and we work to like integrate all of the good efforts that are made in DNI in the organization. And it lines up to we actually have a strategic plan for DNI. That's my corporate background that creeps into this job. So we have actions aligned to the specific goals, and then we can measure them and assess, you know, and then we're accountable for what we're doing. Wow. So a lot of professionals from underrepresented groups in the international policy space, have found their greatest successes in pursuing diversity to come when they simply excel in their roles and specializations, proving their abilities and challenging biases. What made you decide to make diversity and inclusion the focus of your work rather than a byproduct of it, as you mentioned, being a product of many of these programs in the past? It's called a midlife crisis. No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. I've been kind of a nomad in my area of expertise. I don't know if you noticed that. And you know, it's been my way of kind of staying agile and adaptable in the field. And then I get to flex skills and keep my career interesting. I like to, to stay very active in what I'm doing. And just also, I would have stayed in government, but about 15 years ago, I met my now husband and he was in the Navy. And so his uh, duty station got transferred to California. So I left government to go to industry. But then I got comfortable in industry. But then, you know, again, like, this is about, you know, being agile and adaptable. And this is when I mentor um, younger professionals. I always tell them, you know, be open to change. So aerospace and defense started to shift. I saw that as an opportunity to try practicing law full time. Why not? Right. Took that expertise and used it to um, work as legal counsel. And then in each of these roles, I got, you know, built more knowledge. I built my skills. I became more adaptable. And I have served in senior management roles with visibility, but I really wanted to be involved on like a broader level. So I started getting more engaged on the topic and eventually started taking over most of my full-time effort. And so I just went ahead and succumbed, set the personal goal of making diversity and inclusion my full-time pursuit. And that's what I did. And I love my job. 
it's as fulfilling as pursuing proliferators, but in, in kind of a different way. Sure. Yeah, that's incredible. You've mentioned at talks that you've given in the past that diversity and inclusion, while cohesive and necessary for one another, are entirely different issues. How do you recommend well-meaning diversity initiatives that are erecting across the public and private sectors best prioritize inclusion as well as representation in their efforts? So um, I'm in the soapbox here for a little bit, if you don't mind. Here's what's really lost in these you know, really well-meaning diversity and inclusion plans. Look, diverse hires aren't going to just show up at your door if you advertise on your social media or your company's website. If you don't have a history of diverse candidates being successful when they apply, you lose credibility. When you have no folks of color or with different physical abilities or veterans in senior management, you lose credibility. People notice these things. So like, as I mentioned earlier, it takes hard work. You have to be honest in your self-assessment. And again, you got to roll up your sleeves and get dirty because chances are, if you're just relying on your known network to get your diverse hires, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so, you know, you have to start thinking outside of the box. You have to start working with minority serving institutions, you know, affinity groups like your own WCAPs, LC wins out in national security. There are multiple groups out there that are specifically focused on you know, broadening the pipeline into our profession. You can use job boards. You can participate. You can engage in discussions on best practices, right? But it's all about being open to innovation and thinking about it differently because, you know, again, I've been doing this for 20 years. Not much has changed. So it's time to, you know, get a little uncomfortable in this space. Sure. So in terms of measuring success for these initiatives, do you think that having a company with diverse professionals in all ranks is an effective way to kind of see how well those initiatives are working? Or do you have other measures of success? Well, I think, you know, before you start measuring success, you kind of have to go back and look at how you're bringing people in, because it's not enough to just bring in diverse hires and then yay verily, right? You know, you have to start thinking about your culture, you know, the biggest challenge for inclusion is this over-reliance on this narrow definition of what is a best fit or a cultural fit. You know, so if you're just plugging diverse hires into these different roles and you're just looking for diverse hires that just fit that cookie cutter mold, you know, they're not going to stay, you know, because then selection is based on who will or who can assimilate into the dominant culture. And if your dominant culture is white, male, straight and cisgender, then you will never have a truly inclusive workplace where your employees can thrive, where they can bring their school selves to work. And again, that's just as important at junior levels as it is at senior levels. You also have to build like stable support systems for affinity groups. You know, they have to be safe space, but you know, they can also be empowered to make recommendations. And then again, you, you know, align everything you're doing with your human resources department, even your ethics function. You know, getting those diverse hires in, again, at every level doesn't matter if they don't actually have a voice at the table and if they aren't even bringing that diversity to bear in their council. And if because of that, they're not being really fully heard. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of switching gears to security in particular, some people in these affinity groups, such as out national security, girl security have called the lack of diversity in the national security space to be one of the greatest threats to national security that we face today. Do you believe lack of diversity itself is a national security threat, and how so? 
So, you know, first I'm going to say, and we all understand this, you know, diversity is not pursued just because it's the right thing to do. You know, we have to do it if the U.S. still wants to be seen as a world leader. Look, we're America. We need to demonstrate that diversity is the norm, not the exception. Again, we need to walk the walk. You know, diversity is who we are. You know, it begs the question, if we'd had more diversity in our national security and foreign policy leadership over the years, rather, what could have been the outcome in some of our most vexing and enduring challenges? And I can say that as a nonproliferation professional, right? I mean, you have to stick and move and stick and move and stick and move. But if you're constantly going to the same, you know, same set of rules and the same approach, again, you're just not going to achieve those types of outcomes that, you know, really beg themselves to a modern and relevant national security and foreign policy stance. Sure. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, you kind of took a bit of a career change to dive into diversity issues coming from a national security kind of track. And a lot of times it's already incredibly difficult for women and members of minority groups at large to get their foot in the door. And once they do, it can feel like a personal risk to their career to advocate for changing the systems that they now operate within. How do you think diverse professionals in the policy world can fight for a more equitable workplace without putting their own success at risk? So this is where, you know, finding your tribe in your place of work is so important. The thing that's really great about now, you know, when I was starting in my career, there weren't really any groups that advocated for diversity in international affairs, not any that had like visibility that I would have known about. Now there are so many wonderful resources out there where, you know, not only are they able to provide that support, guidance, and mentorship for professionals, but now they have the ear of senior management of think tanks and corporations and government. They're being listened to. We didn't have that. So it's a very unique space that we occupy right now. There's a lot of momentum and you know, again, our ranks are only getting larger. So making sure we keep those connections, providing support resources, mentorship. And I might add mentorship goes both ways, right? A lot of people think about mentorships as, you know, someone in a senior position, mentoring someone in a junior position. I personally have a much different view. I have a mentor in their early 20s. And that's specifically because not just of the role that I play, in my particular job, but also because it helps me as a person and a professional in the way that I interact um, with society at large. So find your support. The other thing I might add is your allies may not look the way you expect them to look, but allyship is really not about who you are or what you look like. Allyship is about, you know, bringing people together to work toward a common goal and finding people that are like-minded that occupy a unique position in their structure or their organization to carry those messages forward to a larger group. Sure. How do you think someone who maybe hears this podcast and wants to be an ally but doesn't know exactly how to get involved, how do you think professionals who are in this space can most effectively start uplifting other voices, maybe without the official channels of a, you know, affinity group or mentorship program? You know, it is so important to understand your power. What power do you possess? Where do you sit? 
within your organization and your structure? Who listens to you? You know, how can you leverage your position as whomever you are to bring these issues up to a larger audience? I say all the time, it's great that I occupy this space and I have this role to shepherd diversity and inclusion within your organization, but I can't do it without allies within our organization. And those allies don't necessarily look like me. So, you know, being open to hearing ideas from your staff or your colleagues is one thing, but then understanding the unique position that you hold, that people listen to you, you have a responsibility to, to exercise that. Yeah, that I think will be helpful for a lot of people looking to kind of make a positive change in their workspaces. And finally, I just wanted to ask, as you've mentioned and as Bev mentioned earlier, there is a lot of momentum coming up behind some of these initiatives for equity, both within international affairs and national security and across all kinds of sectors in our country. Um, What do you anticipate being the greatest challenge to achieving a representative and equitable international policy community and perhaps for other diversity initiatives across different sectors as well? Two words, enduring commitment. It can't be a a trend. It can't be a feel good right now, or this is the right or most trendy thing to do. The implications are, are much too serious for that. And, you know, making sure that we keep the conversation going, making sure that we continue to work, you know, make meaningful changes, listen to diversity and inclusion professionals, take their advice on board. Be honest with yourself. It's a, it's a transformative process and it's also a habit. So, you know, anyone in the habit change space will tell you that in order to replace a bad habit with a good habit, you just practice that good habit over and over and over and over again until it completely drowns out the bad one. And that's how I see, you know, diversity and inclusion programming. You keep practicing those best practices. You keep doing the hard work. You keep listening. You keep up with the self-reflection. It's almost like a 10-step, right? You know, you're going through all these processes, but you're doing it on a continual basis. That's one challenge. Institutionally, continuing to fund diversity and inclusion efforts, right? That's a big issue. You know, everybody's hiring diversity and inclusion specialists these days. Keep up the commitment. Don't let it fall to the wayside. See it as part of an integrated function for the overall effectiveness of your organization. This is something that corporate America has actually been doing for quite some time now, quite some time being the last decade or two, right? But what they quickly realize is that when they have more diverse uh, workforce, more diverse leadership, they make better business decisions and they make more money. So the most diverse organizations tend to have the strongest bottom line. And that's not articulating it very well, but it is known that that's the case. And so they came to that understanding quite a while ago and they saw their, their dollar signs go up. That's the way we need to see it in our international affairs community. Right. So it sounds like it needs to be a balance of both kind of the moral initiative for diversity as well as the recognition that it's an effective path forward. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, um, I believe that's all the questions I have for today. I do have a follow-up. Nicole, something that I'm curious about, you talked about how you went to college and you became a Russian major and that wasn't all that common at the time. How do you get more black and brown students and people of color, young people, 
interested in the international security field and the foreign policy field? You know, that's a great question. And it's been talked about quite a bit. You know, the way I see it is that it has to be relevant to someone. It has to be one seen as an opportunity and a potential. I don't think, you know, international affairs or foreign policy, I don't think they're marketed as a good career to black and brown students. I think there's this perception that you have to have a degree in international studies or foreign language in order to enter that space. But if you go into government, I mean, I worked with geography majors, English lit majors, phys ed majors, you know, right? But they were in nonproliferation because the U.S. government goes out and they find potentials and they market to potentials. And so, you know, if we start, you know, marketing to black and brown students as a potential you know, talent for this field, I think that will make a real difference. I think also, you know, on the inclusion side of it, you know, those voices that come to the table, they're going to have a different take on some of these big issues. Letting people know that that's valued and that that's what we need and what we're looking for, I think that also makes a difference. You know, if you're afraid that your particular experience has zero relevancy to international affairs, let me just say it's international affairs. International affairs is anything and everything, anything and everything. It's not narrowly in one sector. All of the issues that we deal with domestically in the United States are dealt with domestically in other parts of the world. So, you know, changing the narrative on what international affairs is changing the way that we reach out to students, letting them know that, you know, the kind of the world is is out there and you don't have to be, you know, in a single track from elementary school all the way up to grad school to be able to enter into this space. That is an absolutely important point to make. And I hope all the folks listening to this podcast take it to heart. Hannah, Nicole, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you both for having me. Thanks, everyone. And thanks to you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.